Hello and welcome to the Paradox Podcast, whenever you are and whoever you are. I want to give a special shout out and thank you to our online donors who make this podcast possible by donating at ParadoxGiving.com. Now at Paradox, sermons are meant to start discussions and not end them. And that is abundantly true in today's sermon. There are going to be far more questions raised than answers given. So if you have questions that you feel like you need answered, I will do my best to answer them if you write me an email at craig at paradoxredlands.com. Or you can head over to our Instagram page where Kanda took audience questions and I did my best to answer those. Today we are looking at the 22nd chapter of Deuteronomy, and this teaching is entitled The Sexuality of Deuteronomy. Today's sermon is all about sex. Now this may seem exciting to you until you remember that we are talking about sex while we are on a podcast sponsored by a church. And the church is a bit of a buzzkill when it gets involved in sexual conversations, isn't it? Because the near universal creed from the Christian church in America today about modern sexuality is that sex before marriage is a sin. Now, Christians disagree on a lot of things. They disagree on who will be admitted into heaven. They disagree on what the word inspiration means for the Bible. And they disagree on whether drums are acceptable in church. But the general impression that we have is that nearly all Christian organizations across the country can agree that premarital sex is against the will of God. And when you think about all of the different churches in America, joining together to tout the same clear sexual ethic, that we should assume that this unity would lead Christians in America to abstain from sex until after marriage. But are Christians actually waiting until they are married to have sex? Back in 2009, the national campaign to prevent teen and unplanned pregnancy found that 88% of unmarried adults ages 18 to 29 said they have already had sex. Now, one might assume that number would take a nosedive when only asking Christians the same question. But when that same organization asked Christians if they were abstaining from sex until marriage, 80% of unmarried evangelicals ages 18 to 29 said that they had already had sex. Four out of five evangelicals did not wait until they were married to have sex. True, evangelicalism is just a small subset of the larger umbrella of Christianity in America. But I must say that in my pastoral experience, this number feels right as a good representation of Christian sexuality at large today. Now there is a tendency for older generations to look at this number, 80%, scoff and say, well, back in my day, we had the discipline and the patience to wait until we were married before we had sex. But a recent study by the Guttmacher Institute that was published by CBS News found that more than nine out of 10 Americans men and women alike have had premarital sex. They then accounted for the differences between generations and found that the high rates of sex before marriage extended to women born in the 1940s, 
challenging perceptions that people were more chaste in the past. Which means that people are engaging in premarital sex at about the same rate today as they have been for the past 80 years. Around 80% of Christians have sex before marriage. And adding to the intrigue of these statistics, the Pew Research Center found that 79% of the religiously unaffiliated say that consensual sex between unmarried adults is always or sometimes acceptable. When Christians were asked the same question by the same researchers, they found that 57% of Christians in America say that sex between unmarried adults is always or sometimes acceptable. This means that the majority of Christians do not believe that sex before marriage is a sin. So with those numbers in mind, let's look closely at the dichotomy of what is happening between the church and Christians in the church. A pastor stands up and declares emphatically to a congregation during his sermon, sex before marriage is a sin. But if that pastor paused and said, right? I mean, how many of you agree with me on this? Only 40% of the people in that congregation would raise their hands. The majority of people in the church would disagree with the ethic that sex before marriage is a sin. Now let's take this one step further and assume the pastor asked the congregation, and how many of you waited until you were married to have sex for the first time? Only 20% of the adults in attendance would keep their hands raised. In other words, only one out of five Christians believe that sex before marriage is a sin and also wait until they are married to have sex. Do you realize what this means? It means that if you attend a church, and not just a liberal church like Paradox, but any church in America, and you believe that sex between consenting unmarried adults is morally acceptable, then you are not in the minority of the congregational mindset, but you are in the majority of how the people in the church feel. So here you have churches telling everyone in the world that Christians don't have sex before marriage, and those same churches are filled with Christians who are definitely having sex before marriage. This is a problem. <laughs> Because either the pastors do not know the people they are pastoring or the pastors do not view the majority of their parishioners as authentic Christians. Now, of course, a devout Christian from the 20% who believes premarital sex is wrong and did not have sex before marriage will suggest that what young people need today to get back on track sexually is a healthy dose of the Bible. There is a real sense among Christians that if young people do their daily devotions in scripture, then they will clearly see that God designed sex to be enjoyed within the confines of marriage and that young people will be inspired to wait patiently until they are married for sexual pleasure because the Bible tells them so. There's just one problem with that assumption. There is only one passage in all of scripture that condemns sex 
before marriage. And that passage is in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, if we had a few evangelical Bible nerds listening to this podcast, they would quickly object to this claim and point to the other passages of Scripture beyond the book of Deuteronomy. The first passage that Christians would cite occurs in the second chapter of the book of Genesis. Now, in this account of creation, God creates Adam first and then Eve second. Adam, gazing upon Eve for the first time, says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. Then the narrator, yes, the narrator and not God, says, Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, the reason this text is often cited as biblical condemnation for sex before marriage is because the narrator of Genesis uses the word wife, indicating marriage, and then the narrator talks about sex. But please notice, the narrator is not commenting at all on premarital sex. The narrator is simply talking about what happens when a couple is married. Now, if you approach the Bible with an agenda seeking to prove that sex before marriage is a sin, then the agenda changes the way that we read and experience this text today. When we bring this agenda to the text, then we suffer from theological confirmation bias. And theological confirmation bias is deeply problematic in Christianity today. This bias takes this verse, Genesis 2.24, out of context and uses it to condemn sex before marriage, even though this verse says nothing about sex before marriage. Instead, Genesis 2.24 discusses sex after marriage. Which brings us to the second verse that Christians often use to talk about sex before marriage. And this passage can be found in the book of Exodus. In this book, Moses receives ten commandments from God. The seventh commandment is, You shall not commit adultery. For centuries, some Christians have argued that adultery occurs whenever you sleep with anyone who is not your marital partner. Now, this is problematic because this is not how our society defines adultery today. And it's not how the Israelites defined adultery in their society during Moses's day. Adultery in our society means that a married person has sex with someone other than their spouse. Now, if you called two unmarried people having consensual sex adulterers, then people in our society today would be utterly confused by your rhetoric. In the same way, using the word adultery to condemn premarital sex would utterly confuse Moses and the Israelites during their day. Because back then, adultery was defined differently for men and women because, well, you know, the patriarchy. In Moses' day, adultery was committed by women whenever a woman slept with someone who was not her husband. However, adultery, according to Moses' society, was committed by men whenever they slept with a woman who was the wife of another man. So the ethics of Moses' day was that men were allowed and free to sleep with whomever they wanted as long as their extramarital partner was not married to someone else, 
while women were only allowed to sleep with their husband. Now, if this definition of adultery seems backwards and sexist by our standards today, then allow me to be very clear. This definition of adultery is sexist and backwards. So it's really difficult to hold up the seventh commandment as an immutable ethic for us to strive toward when we know that this commandment was wielded by men as a weapon to oppress women. This commandment does not discuss whether sex before marriage is a sin. Which brings us to the third passage of scripture that Christians use to condemn sex before marriage. This passage is from the 13th chapter of the book of Hebrews. Now, we do not know who wrote Hebrews, but in the final chapter of this letter, they write something that has been quoted again and again by Christians who are against sex before marriage. The text reads, quote, Let marriage be held in honor by all, and let the marriage bed be kept undefiled. For God will judge fornicators and adulterers. Now, this passage seems to be a much more clear, straight-up condemnation of fornication. And our society's definition of fornication is when two people who are not married have sex. So someone could look at this and say, Aha! This passage right here, this verse, condemns fornication. See, Craig? There's more than one passage of Scripture that supports this sexual ethic. However, this understanding of Scripture is problematic because the word fornicators appears or disappears based on what English translation you are reading. Fornicators is translated from the Greek word pornus. Now, pornus is the Greek word for a male prostitute, which is why the KJV translation translates pornus as whoremongers. Now, the word pornus is masculine, indicating that the author of Hebrews is talking about men's sexual sin. And given the fact that we have a definition of adultery from Moses' day that is sexist and backwards, it's possible that the Jewish author of Hebrews is attempting to correct the oppressive sexism and definition of adultery that is laid out in the Hebrew Bible. This is why the BBE translates the last phrase of this verse from the word pornus and others to read that God will judge, quote, men who are untrue in married life. Anytime we encounter the word fornicators or fornication in the New Testament in an English translation of the Bible today, it is always translated from the Greek word pornus. And to translate pornus to the word fornicators today misrepresents what this word meant in the New Testament's day. The scholar Dr. Will Gaffney recently discussed what happens when we take absolute morals from English translations of the Bible. She posted an article about the word homosexual appearing in English translations. She then pointed out how translating any word from Greek and Hebrew into the word homosexual is problematic because it misrepresents the original language of the Bible. She said, quote, This only underscores the degree to which you cannot make an absolute claim about the text of the Bible if you are only reading it in translation. You don't know who translated it. You don't know the principles of translation. 
you don't know how much it varies and how often from the legitimate semantic range of the underlying language. Close quote. We should never make an absolute claim about the Bible when we read it in an English translation. And rather than encouraging each of you to learn Greek and Hebrew so you can understand the Bible, I would instead encourage you to look up multiple English translations of the verses you are looking at in order to get a bigger picture of how the Bible is translated. Because Hebrews 13.4 does condemn fornication in some translations. And in my opinion, fornication or fornicators is a poor representation of the Greek word pornus, which is what the author of Hebrews intended for us to hear. In my experience, these three verses from Genesis, Exodus, and Hebrews are the biblical foundation for a sexual ethic for why sex before marriage is a sin. And the problem with using these three verses as the foundation for that ethic is that none of these passages actually discuss premarital sex. Which brings us back to the one passage of scripture that actually condemns sex before marriage and raises the question, why is it that the one passage that discusses sex before marriage is never brought up by people who wish to condemn sex before marriage. Keep that question in mind as we turn to the 22nd chapter of Deuteronomy. If you have been with us during our series in Deuteronomy, then you know that Deuteronomy is a nearly four hour long sermon given by Moses to the children of Israel right before he dies. Now, the majority of the book is a list of laws that Moses wants the Israelites to adopt when they establish a society in the promised land. And toward the end of that collection of laws, Moses offers a law that talks about what happens when someone has sex before they are married and how he wants this new society to respond. Moses says, suppose a man marries a woman, but after going into her, he dislikes her and makes up charges against her, slandering her by saying, I married this woman, but when I lay with her, I did not find evidence of her virginity. The father of the young woman and her mother shall then submit the evidence of the young woman's virginity to the elders of the city at the gate. The father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter in marriage to this man, but he dislikes her. Now he has made up charges against her, saying, I did not find evidence of your daughter's virginity. But here is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. Then the father shall spread out the cloth, also known as the bedsheet, before the elders of the town. The elders then of that town shall take the man and punish him. They shall fine the man 100 shekels of silver, which they shall give to the young woman's father, because he has slandered a virgin of Israel. The woman shall remain his wife. He shall not be permitted to divorce her as long as he lives. Moses keeps going. If, however, this charge is true, that evidence of the young woman's virginity was not found, then the men shall bring the young woman out to the entrance of her father's house, and the men of her town shall stone her to death. 
because she committed a disgraceful act in Israel by prostituting herself in her father's house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And Moses moves on to the next subject. Good night. This is a frightening passage of scripture, and there is a lot to unpack here. We need to start by breaking down what this law actually looks like in reality. So in Moses' day, marriage was not an act of mutual and equal partnership. Rather, marriage reduced women to the status of property for husbands to acquire, and marriage was much closer to a business transaction. If that paradigm of marriage isn't sexist and problematic enough for you, then remember that a woman's value as a wife was significantly higher if she was a virgin. The primary reason for this is that men ran society. And in the society, they did not possess the ability to conduct paternity tests. So the men had two options to determine whether or not their children actually belonged to them. The first option was to oppress women and threaten them with death if they had sex with anyone who was not their husband. The second option was for men to just believe what the women in their society told them. And the men looked at these options and said, well, clearly option two is off the table. So they oppressed women and threatened them with death in order to ensure that their children belong to them. So here in Deuteronomy, Moses gives husbands a law and a due process for what they should do if a man paid a dowry for a virgin, but after sleeping with his wife, grows suspicious that she is not, in fact, a virgin. This man could then go forward and press charges. And the burden of proof fell upon the seller of the virgin woman, also known as the father of the bride. To prove her virginity, the father of the bride had to bring forward the very bedsheet on which the couple had consummated their marriage on their wedding night. If there was blood on the bedsheet, then the woman lived and the man paid a fine. But if there was not any blood on the bedsheet, then the woman would be executed by the men of the town. Wow. This is in the Bible. These are the words of Moses. And at this point, I think it's best if we get a gynecologist involved to help us understand what's going on here. So let's go to my family's gynecologist, Dr. Ashley Henderson, who delivered both of our children. To say that my wife and I trust Ashley with our lives is an understatement. We trust Ashley with our children's lives. And last week, I called Ashley to discuss Deuteronomy 22 and get a gynecologist's perspective on this passage of scripture. Dr. Henderson said, quote, most women bleed after their first sexual encounter. This is most commonly due to the tearing of the tight hymenal ring. This bleeding occurs for most women, but this bleeding does not occur for all women. Blood is not a reliable indicator as to whether this is a woman's first time or not. In fact, it is impossible to do a physical exam to determine whether a woman is a virgin or not. That is true today, and it was true 
during biblical times. Close quote. So basically, Moses declares a new law. If a woman bleeds during her first time, then she is a virgin and therefore worthy of life. But if she does not bleed, then she has slept with someone before you and is therefore worthy of death. My friends, there are three things we need to say about this law that is found in Deuteronomy 22. The first thing we need to say is that Deuteronomy 22 is sexist. Because this law implies that a woman's worth is tied directly to her sexual history. Not only that, but notice how this law from Moses does not restrict men at all from engaging in premarital sex. This law only condemns women who have sex before marriage, and this law condemns them with death. This is a sexist passage of scripture, and it is precisely what happens when men make all of the rules. The sexism of this law should remind us that women should make all of the rules when it comes to ethics in the female body. To make up for lost time, women should have the majority voice in discussion of sexual ethics today. And when men make the rules about women's bodies, like blood being a reliable indicator of her first time, then the results are sexist and sinful. Even if the man making the rules is Moses, even if the man is cited as an authority in the Bible, when men make the rules about women's bodies, it is a sin. Deuteronomy 22 is sexist. But Deuteronomy 22 is also barbaric. I mean, the death penalty for having sex before marriage not only that, but the penalty for a woman not bleeding during her wedding night is death. But the penalty for the man who wrongfully accuses her is to pay a mere fine. And if the man's accusations are proved to be false by an unreliable indicator, then the woman is required to stay married to her husband. A man who, just moments ago, was willing to let her be executed because he didn't find her to be satisfactory during their first time. This is an exceedingly cruel law that Moses offers to the children of Israel, and we must be willing to call it a barbaric ethic. Lastly, Deuteronomy 22 is unscientific. Dr. Henderson told us that most women bleed during their first time having intercourse, but not all women. Moses stands before the men of Israel and tells them that they can count on blood on the bedsheets to inform them whether this is their wife's first time. He was wrong. Science demonstrates that blood is not a reliable indicator to tell someone about their female partner's sexual history. And if the Israelites actually followed this law, then they most likely murdered innocent women. This law is a tragic law. This law is sexist. This law is barbaric. And this law is unscientific. This law is not a moral law, which is why we should never hold this passage up as a guide for what is ethical today. 
Friends, there is only one passage of scripture that condemns sex before marriage. And that passage of scripture is sexist, barbaric, and unscientific. So when pastors today say that young people need to study the Bible more to understand God's design for sex is to be enjoyed only within the confines of marriage, I look at those pastors and say, really? Because the Bible has very little to say about sex before marriage. And the one passage that does speak about sex before marriage is not an ethical passage of scripture by any stretch of the imagination. So when the church stands up and says to the world, sex before marriage is a sin, we should stop and ask the church, where did you get that idea? Because the answer is not the Bible. The idea that sex before marriage is a sin is not a biblical idea. And the moment that we present this idea as a biblical idea, we actually promote biblical illiteracy and discourage people from reading their Bible. Do not allow another Christian to tell you that the Bible condemns sex before marriage, because that simply isn't true for all of the passages except one, and the one that remains is entirely unethical. Now, perhaps you ask the question, where did you get the idea that sex before marriage is a sin? And the church does not reference the Bible in their answer. But instead, the church references the tradition and the history of Christianity. The church, they argue, oversees the sacrament of marriage. And as keepers of the sanctity of marriage, the church has always held the expectations that couples who they marry will wait until they are married before they become intimate in the bedroom. Now, that's an interesting counter argument that requires a bit of a closer look. In the New Testament, no one set up more churches than the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote all kinds of letters to several different churches he established. He told them about rules and regulations that they should follow as they seek to organize into Christian communities and how these Christian communities should function. What may surprise you is that in all of these letters, Paul never once suggested that a Christian church should oversee and officiate weddings. In fact, Paul wrote to the Corinthian church that he hoped that everyone in that congregation that wasn't married would stay unmarried. His words are, quote, To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is well for them to remain unmarried as I am. Close quote. He justifies this stance by saying that if one is celibate, then they can more fully serve God because they will not be distracted by their sexuality. So two things to note here. The first is that Paul, most likely, never envisioned a church overseeing marriage between couples. The second is in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul taught that the highest sexual ethic for humans was celibacy. Now, if you want to know what I personally think about Paul's belief that celibacy is the highest sexual ethic, then allow me to introduce you to my wife and my children, and that's about all you need to know. The early church did not officiate weddings. The early church did not offer premarital counseling. The early church did not offer 10 tips for a more successful marriage. 
and the prominent voice of the early church stressed that God would rather have you be celibate instead of getting married. Which brings forward the question, when did that all change? Because churches definitely officiate weddings today, don't they? <laughs> Historian Stephanie Kuntz once wrote, quote, The Catholic Church did not make marriage a sacrament until the 13th century and only began to enforce strict religious conformity to marriage in the 16th century, in part as a reaction to criticism from Protestants that Catholics were insufficiently enthusiastic about the institution, close quote. When I first heard this, it completely changed my perspective on the church's relationship to marriage. To make this revelation from Kuntz real, consider the most iconic cathedral in the world, Notre Dame in Paris. Construction began on this cathedral in the year 1163 CE, which means that when people started building this cathedral, none of the builders or religious officials of this cathedral ever pictured a wedding taking place in Notre Dame. This cathedral has been around longer than the church has been officiating weddings. And while churches have been officiating weddings for 800 years, there are 1,200 years prior to that in church history where the church on the whole didn't really care about weddings. <laughs> the church has more history without weddings than the church has history with weddings. So the idea that the church has guarded the sacrament of marriage from the very beginning is a false claim. The idea that the church has always promoted sex to take place only within the confines of marriage is a false claim. Lately, when I've heard pastors and Christians stand up and say that sex before marriage is a sin, I respond by asking, are we sure? Are we really sure that sex before marriage is a sin? And if a pastor were to respond with, well, the people of God have always believed this, the only correct answer is no. No, we haven't. My friends, you know me well. And I hope that you know that I think carefully about the words that I say. My entire life, I've heard the church tell me that sex before marriage is a sin. And after spending 12 years as a pastor and hearing the shame that people feel because of their sexuality and seeing the tears that people shed because the church does not view them as whole and listening to the stories that people speak about their own experiences. I must tell you that I've seen firsthand how damaging the ethic that sex before marriage is a sin can be. For this reason, I believe it's time for the church to let go of this ethic. I'm not the first person to say this, and I will not be the last. But I think the church can be more effective in the ministry and work that we are called to be if we can let the idea go that sex before marriage is a sin. Now at this point, you may be thinking, who are you and what authority do you have to all of a sudden get rid of one of the most universally accepted ethics in Christianity? That's a fair question. 
And to answer it, I'd like for all of us to go back in time and travel halfway across the world to a hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee. On this hillside, imagine a peasant from the insignificant dust bowl known as Nazareth preaching to a gathering of people. The peasant's name is Jesus, and the words he speaks will later be known as the Sermon on the Mount. In the first section of this sermon, there are six different times that Jesus uses the phrase, you have heard that it was said. And after saying that phrase, Jesus would then recite a well-known commandment of the people's religion. These commandments include, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, and an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But after stating each of these commandments, Jesus then offers a turn of phrase. He says in each of those six instances, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And after that turn of phrase, Jesus would then offer a new ethic to replace the old ethic. So Jesus told the masses, you have heard it said that you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, do not even be angry with your brother or sister. Jesus went on, you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that any man who looks at another woman with lust has already committed adultery. A few verses later, Jesus preaches, You have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, if you are struck, turn the other cheek. If someone sues you for your coat, give him your cloak as well. If you are forced to walk one mile, then walk two. These are half of the examples that are in this chapter of Scripture where Jesus uses the phrase during his sermon. What exactly is Jesus doing here? Well, Jesus is deconstructing the religious ethics of his day and offering reconstructed ethics in their place. And these ethics that Jesus deconstructs are some of the holiest ethics. He reframes three out of the Ten Commandments, which were carved by the fairy finger of God, may I remind you, and says that these commandments are fine, but I think there is a better way to live beyond the commandments. Now, he's not the first to do this deconstruction. You can find deconstructive work in the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. You can find deconstructive work in the teachings of the contemporary rabbis of Jesus' era. Which means that paradoxically, the moment that Jesus holds up a religious rule and discards it, and then offers something in its place... He is not being anti-tradition, but is actually very much in line with the tradition of his religion. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus participates in the tradition of theological deconstruction. Therefore, if we are to truly follow in the footsteps of Jesus, then we will be required to discard some of our holiest commandments and offer new commandments going forward. Jesus challenged 30% of the Ten Commandments, which means we can challenge any ethic that the church holds as sacred today. So when someone says, who do you think you are to challenge the whole notion that sex before marriage is a sin? 
I would respond by saying I'm a follower of Jesus and theological deconstruction is what we do. Imagine if Jesus Christ walked among us today. Do you think he would look at all of the teachings and doctrines of the church in America and say, nice work, gentlemen. You've pretty much got everything figured out. Of course he wouldn't. And if we invited Jesus to come and speak at Paradox today, and we asked him to speak on sexual ethics in 2021, my very best guess is that Jesus would say something like this. You have heard it said that sex before marriage is a sin. But today I tell you that what matters in romantic relationships is respect and consent. This is my best guess as to what Jesus would say to us if he spoke to us this morning. I believe that Jesus would say these words because he would look at every Christian and recognize that 80% of these Christians were being condemned by a doctrine and encouraged to feel shame about their humanity. And when we look at what Jesus did in the Gospels, time and time again, he participated in the tradition of deconstruction he discarded rules and reframed rules and changed commandments and reissued sacred words, all in an effort to bring as many people along into the beautiful message of the good news. He did all this to let them know, let human beings know, that they are unconditionally and fully loved. My friends, we need to discard abstinence as the primary sexual ethic of the church and replace it with consent. And the main reason we do this is not to be edgy or progressive or to let go of our morals. No, we need to do this to help people let go of any shame they feel for being human and to help humans embrace that they are loved in excess by God. We need to do this because abstinence has been used as a measuring rod to determine who is devout to the faith and who is not. We need to do this because the ethic of abstinence has negatively impacted women far more than men. We need to do this so that the church can help individuals and couples and communities more fully experience healthy sexuality. Discarding commandments and replacing them with ethics for the sake of humanity is the way of Jesus. And I sense God is calling us to let go of abstinence and replace it with consent. Back in 2017, Kesha released her best album, Rainbow. And my favorite track on this record is the song, Hymn. Now she wrote these words about what this song means for her. Quote, the longer title was Him for the Hymnless. And when I say Hymnless, I'm talking about people who feel like they don't fit in. People who feel like they don't have a hymn. I hope this is one of those songs that will find and connect with people who feel like outcasts. Close quote. At the end of our church service last week, Maddie sang Kesha's hymn. I would like to encourage you to go and listen to that online at the end of this podcast. My hope is that anyone who feels like the church has alienated them, 
that the church has rejected them or that they have had to live a double life in church because they had sex before marriage may hear Kesha's hymn and know that they have a place in this church and know that the church was wrong for casting so much shame in them and know that they are loved by God. My hope is that if you feel like you are carrying any shame at all for your sexuality, that you may hear the hymn as an invitation to let go of any shame that is weighing you down. My friends, you are fearfully, you are wonderfully, and you are beautifully made in God's image. And God's image includes your sexuality. So may we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all.